0: to the Psych Central Podcast, where each episode features guest experts discussing psychology and mental health in everyday, plain language. Here's your host, Gabe Howard.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Podcast. Today, I will be talking with Melissa Glazer, who is the author of Healing a Community, Lessons for Recovery After a Large-Scale Trauma. She's a licensed professional counselor who's been providing clinical psychotherapy services for the last 28 years, and she's best known nationally for her work with the Newtown community after the tragic events that unfolded there. Melissa, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, thank you for having me, and thank you for giving time to this topic.
1: Oh, it's very much our pleasure. Let's just fly right out of the gate. Can you explain why you're well-known for Newtown?
2: I uh, was in charge of all the community recovery work in Newtown after the Sandy Hook school shooting. So uh, I was brought in to oversee a large federal grant, the first of its kind that the Department of Justice had ever awarded to an entire community to address the recovery um, and trauma issues in the aftermath of a community tragedy
1: nationally, I think everybody felt the effects of the Sandy Hook shootings and what happened mm-hmm. at Newtown. But obviously, I, I live in Columbus, Ohio, and it affected me, Gabe Howard, personally. Mm-hmm. And that's not my community. Yes. What was it like in that community? What was it like just, just driving past the school or, or knowing that you had, you know, friends or family or even children who went to that school. Can you kind of walk us through that a little bit? Because I I imagine that's much deeper than what I felt.
2: Yeah, you know, I think the world was watching on their television screens, you know, the media was ever present. And this was the first mass shooting with casualties that most of, you know, were very young children. So there was a lot of attention uh, being given to the community at the time. I live about, or at the time, lived about 30 minutes outside of Sandy Hook and was working as a behavioral health director for a large nonprofit organization when the shooting took place. We were dispensing clinicians and writing grants to try to help the community in their time of need and also trying to provide firsthand assistance in an area that was unchartered territory. So coming into the community, there were television cameras and reporters everywhere. It felt as if there was this black cloud hanging over the community that couldn't quite get away from. There was pervasive sense of sadness and distrust, an idea of who is here to help and who is value added, who is not. And um, how do you navigate all of this? So for the average citizen, the community was not this quiet, quintessential town that you could you know, walk down the street or walk your dog a- anymore. There was absolutely a sense of massive change with lots of individuals trying to navigate, but not quite knowing how to do that.
1: Would you say that since Sandy Hook, our ability to attend to the psychological and emotional needs of survivors of these mass shootings has improved? Is it the same? What have we learned?
2: Yeah, I think we've come a tremendous way in understanding how to treat somebody that is a trauma survivor um, and a victim of this kind of tragedy, this complicated grief and high level of trauma. So uh, Uh, When I came on board to help in Sandy Hook, we didn't realize then how important it was to treat both the mind and body. And uh, we were learning that as we were going. And now um, there is such research and groundbreaking work done in that area. So that is tremendous. When I started my work in Sandy Hook, you know, um, I'm a trained cognitive behavioral therapist. I came on board thinking that that's a lot of the work that we were going to be doing. And in fact, learned that, you know, most people in acute stages of trauma, CBT work is not going to be effective, that they're in still such a state of dysregulation, that we, we have to regulate them. And we have to do that by using strategies and treatments that really speak to the body. So things like music therapy and art therapy and meditation and yoga, some of the uh, neurofeedback strategies, those were going to be as important as the CBT work. And sometimes those had to be administered first to get a person into the right state of mind that they could then put language to their story and their experience. But they couldn't do that first. Now we know that. And uh, people that are really well-versed in trauma treatment are using an array of treatments to help somebody. In, uh, in my book, I call it layering. You know, that's what we learned to do, that there wasn't necessarily one treatment that helped every individual. And often we had to use several treatments and layer them in the right way to be effective.
1: Was Sandy Hook the catalyst for this kind of research and change? Or was this something that was, you know, maybe talked about on a a lesser scale? Or did this all come from, you know, this particular tragedy, this kind of thinking?
2: Yeah, I'm not sure Sandy Hook was a catalyst. I think, you know, there were a lot of experts that were just beginning to break through and expose the importance of thinking about trauma work in this way. But since Sandy Hook and so many other tragedies, there have people are very interested now in the research and learning the techniques and understanding that in order to be effective in their practices, they have to go about it in this way. So I just think there's been so much mass trauma. And so we all clinicians all know now um, everybody's at a different place in their needs. And you have to really open yourself up to understanding and training to
1: meet people where they're at. From a professional standpoint, how should the aftermath of a school shooting be handled differently from other tragedies? Because I I know that a lot of people, are they sort of seem like the response to a tragedy is one size fits all. It doesn't matter the tragedy. Here's how you handle it.
2: Yeah, you know, I um, I write about how it's important to identify who your community is. So working in a community where there's a school shooting versus a community like Boston, where the, the marathon bombing took place, there there are lots of similarities, but so many dynamics that you have to address that could be very different. In a school shooting situation, you know, you have to remember that these are children and, and uh, families and parents who have lost their child. So you have to address grief on in that level. There were many, many, many other children and adults in the building when it happened that are going to be severely impacted, that there needs to be um, a sense of we called it, you know, hardening and security. So all of a sudden you have to start thinking about security measures for that school and every other school in the community. And then the dynamics of things like, how do we get back to educating the surviving children while there's such a sense of trauma that hasn't been taken care of still in the air? Um, How do you tell teachers that have just experience this firsthand that in the matter of maybe a couple of weeks, they have to get back into the classroom and teach. And how do you address parents who now have no idea if sending their kids off to school is going to be safe or not? Even on that level, you know, parents were overthinking everything. Is it safe for my child to go to school? Is it safe for my child to go on a play date that I never would have thought about after school? Is it As I'm driving my child into school, am I driving them to their death? So uh, all kinds of uh, dynamics that come with addressing that setting.
1: And I think that we saw the ripple effects of that nationwide. A lot of people ask that question. I I think that universally, we saw schools as a safe place for children and after this event and other events, we now no longer feel that schools are necessarily there, there's a little bit of doubt in there. Mm. Whereas there was zero doubts. If, if we're feeling this all over the country, it must be a thousand times more for the actual community that it happened in. How did you work with those teachers? Because I'm I'm not sure that I would want to go back.
2: Yes. And I think there were a lot of um, emotional issues in the air around that. Most of the teachers, some did not, but most did go back. And some of them went back because they had this sense of obligation or even a sense of survivor's guilt. You know, I survived and some of my coworkers did not. So how can I not go back, even though I'm still so dysregulated and struggling so much and don't know if I can do it? do I really have a choice? So we heard from a lot of teachers that felt like their needs were not addressed appropriately, that they were expected to go back in to school three weeks after the shooting into a new school setting, you know, where they were unfamiliar and they were not given the tools that they felt they needed to address the concerns. So My role in Sandy Hook was actually, you know, my official role started a year and a half after the tragedy. That's how long it took for this grant to be approved.
1: Wow. So the first year and a half, they had less.
2: Well, they had less. You know, there was an educational grant on the federal government level that was in place. But interestingly, I was hearing pretty continuously from teachers saying our needs haven't been met. And we are still uh, really struggling. And uh, we're doing the best that we can, but on a day-to-day basis, feel like we're crumbling a bit. So uh, it, it gives you a sense of, there, there's so many wonderful teachers that did go back in and were doing a tremendous job, but they were questioning themselves. Is what I'm seeing in front of me the result of a child that's traumatized or is this just typical developmental acting out? You know, when I'm disassociating because I hear a loud noise outside and I feel like, oh my gosh, you know, what is that? Could this be another tragedy? Or when we have a lockdown drill and then I feel like I'm not myself and I'm not really present for the next two days afterwards, how do we manage that?
1: We're going to step away to hear from our sponsor and we'll be right back.
0: This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com.
1: We're back talking to Melissa Glazier about her work at Newtown. So you had said that you arrived 18 months later. By the time that you arrived, was there a significant number of children pulled from school or a significant number of teachers who had quit? What did that look like by the time you got there?
2: Yeah, uh, some teachers were relocated to another school in the district. They were offered that option. Some teachers did leave Teaching and didn't come back, but the majority of the teachers um, did go back to this um, new ad hoc school until the town, you know, decided what they were going to do in terms of rebuilding. You know, I think most parents did send their kids back to the school. Some pulled them out and went to private schools. It was another elementary school in the community, and they had the option of sending their child there. But the majority um, of students did return. And again, the community came together in that way, in terms of, you know, not wanting to be identified as th- this community that was falling apart and couldn't move forward. But that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, all the pieces to take care of, you know, the fallout were in place.
1: The One of the things that you've talked about, you know, throughout this episode is that all eyes were on mm-hmm. Newtown. That was just national media coverage, a lot of press just the whole world was watching. In the immediate wake of a tragedy like this, do you have any recommendations for how survivors or a community should deal with the media and the press?
2: Yeah, you know, I still see it happening all the time. I'll turn on the news after a tragedy, and I'll often see um, a reporter with a microphone that's being thrust in front of a victim or somebody that was highly impacted in such an acute time. When You can look at that person and hear what they're saying and know that they are so vulnerable and in a state of dysregulation and confusion. And I think that does a clear amount of damage in itself. And I often want to, you know, yell back off and there's time for this. You know, there were, I think, a lot of individuals that felt compelled to talk when asked and thought they were ready to tell their story, but they really weren't and afterwards maybe had regrets or felt like things were not portrayed the way they had hoped or even thought think they took advantage of my lost loved one i always want to say to an individual in that situation there's plenty of time to tell your story and if you tell your story 2 months later it's still as important maybe more important so you know the media has they have to fill time and It's a tricky line to walk because the world does want to know. They do want to be supportive. We do want to keep people aware and abreast of these tragedies. But I I think we have to be really careful of creating more damage um, with individuals that are so impacted.
1: I I really like that answer. I, I I, I think it's a, a fair answer because you're right. People do want to know what's going on, and we we do want to bring this to light. But we also don't want to re traumatize right. anybody or impact their healing. So we're, I'm sure that's a very difficult line to to walk. Uh, if you're the right. media, uh, in their defense, I'm, I'm not trying to defend the media. I'm just saying I, I it's tough. They would also be right. accused of you know not reporting it if they didn't, but. Yeah, I don't think anybody wants to see a microphone thrust in the face of, uh, you, you know, a, a traumatized child or a victim or somebody who just lost their child. Uh, th- those were some of the most heartbreaking images that I ever saw, and, and it, it does. It kind of makes you feel a little. I, I mean, it. Th- these are just these are just big, big, big images.
2: Yes, and you know when you constantly are hearing things like a reporter saying, "Tell us what the experience was. Tell us what you just went through." I, as a clinician, uh, want to say, "Well, why is that value added?" You know, we don't need to have the individual relive that right now, right? They're not, they don't have the supports um, and you, you know the the emotional strength to be doing that right now. It's not healthy and. It, I don't think it's necessarily information that the rest of the world um, is going to gain
1: value from. So it, it is tricky. Yeah, it is. It's very tricky. And and I noticed that, and I've noticed that when something gets this kind of attention, one of the positive things that happen is that people come to help there. There's lots of, you know, volunteerism and support, but I also know that, you know, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Too many people helping can be negative and, do you have any advice for people who are stepping in to help a community heal after a, a tragedy and not even necessarily as a volunteer, like at, at your level? I mean, what do people need to keep in mind?
2: Yeah, you know, um, I write a little bit about, you know, we had this saying we called a lot of the people coming in Um SUVs, spontaneous uninvited visitors, right? (laughs) Um, And and the reason for that was lots of people came in with good intent, you know, either making promises or wanting to help in their own way. But many of those individuals, what they brought to the process either made things more chaotic or could be damaging if they didn't deliver what they promised, if they weren't well-trained. In the work if they came in um, and left prematurely and didn't follow through and, and see the work through. So on top of all of that, the town was flooded with material items, gift cards and teddy bears and blankets and paintings and you know all kinds of uh, school supplies to the point where that became a huge undertaking to manage. They had to rent out a warehouse to store all of this You know, the post office was so inundated that that became an issue. There was no place to put the items that were coming in. And most of the items, honestly, were not helpful. And when they were finally distributed from this warehouse a year later, they caused sometimes more rift between families and individuals than good. Recovery work is very expensive. And I think if people are looking to help um, or want to donate, money is probably the best way to do that. And to find out where in the community the organized foundation or foundations are that can distribute funds to the right people for their trauma recovery. But otherwise, people were setting up shop in Newtown, promising to provide Help, and some of them were not vetted. They were not equipped or well trained in the work that they were promising to do.
1: It it reminds me of the phrase that my my grandmother always said, which is the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, if you think, oh, this is so bad, I must be able to help, then it becomes more about you and less about the people that you're trying to help. And there needs to be a balance there. That's no exactly matter how. Right much good you want to do uh wanting to do good doesn't equal doing good yeah and i think we see that a lot from tragedies like this one even to natural disasters and you know where people just show up and they're like hi i need food clothing but i'm gonna help well yeah now we have to feed and clothe you that's right do you know how to operate heavy equipment or you know in the case of like a natural disaster or a big fire it's like well no i have none of those skills but i'm here to help Right. We don't want to tell people not to help because that that seems bad. You know, please don't help when something bad happens. No, that doesn't seem like the message. But maybe be realistic about the help that you can provide and be willing to step back if somebody asks you to is probably an excellent message for, you know, spontaneous helpers.
2: Yeah. You know, I think these tragedies create lots of conflicting thoughts, ideas, and messages. And uh, sometimes you have to hold back a bit, you know, be a little less impulsive um, about where you're putting your efforts and to watch how things unfold. And that gives you a better idea maybe where the needs are. Maybe um, find the right avenues to ask more questions, to become a little more educated. And we make a decision about how you want to help and whether that's really going to be value added.
1: Wonderful. Melissa, we, we are out of time. I, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. Please tell us about your book. Tell us where we can find it. Uh, please give us the elevator pitch. Yes.
2: <laughs> yes. Uh, so the book is Healing a Community, Lessons for Recovery After a Large-Scale Trauma. My name is Melissa Glazer. And if you Google my name, it'll come up. But you can also find the book on Amazon. I uh, have a website, Melissa Glazer dot com, where you can get more information.
1: Well, we appreciate you being here. Thank you again for all of the work that you've done. And please continue doing it. Uh, You know, large scale trauma and tragedies, uh, unfortunately, are part of life. And when we don't handle them correctly, and we ignore them, or we don't, you know, look into them, uh, it can take a bad situation and make it that much worse that much quicker.
2: Okay, well, thank you again for bringing uh, some awareness to this topic.
1: Oh, it's our pleasure. Thank you everybody for hanging out with us this week. We really appreciate you. Uh, Again, special thanks to Melissa for being here. Remember, wherever you downloaded this podcast, please give us as many stars as humanly possible. Use your words, write us a review, email, Facebook, social media, Instagram. There are so many social media sites that even if you just share it on one, that'll be like 35,000 likes. Uh, so again, thank you all. And remember, everyone, you can get one week of free, convenient, affordable, private online counseling anytime, anywhere, simply by visiting betterhelp.com slash psychcentral. We'll see everybody next week.
0: You've been listening to the Psych Central podcast. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show or on your favorite podcast player. To learn more about our host, Gabe Howard, please visit his website at gabehoward.com. PsychCentral.com is the internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website run by mental health professionals. Overseen by Dr. John Grohall, PsychCentral.com offers trusted resources and quizzes to help answer your questions about mental health, personality, psychotherapy, and more. Please visit us today at PsychCentral.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email show at PsychCentral.com. Thank you for listening, and please share widely.
1: There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD.